you'd open your Bibles to John chapter 20, we are in our second to last uh, message for this series. So we are just about, just about finished with the book. So let's, um, let's bow in prayer and uh, ask the Lord's help as we, we jump into this, uh, the second to last chapter of the book. Father, thank you for uh, this morning. Uh, thank you for the resilience of hardened Fairbanks Alaskans. Uh, to get up early in the cold and in the dark and to travel down to Bethel Church and to gather together and to worship you. Uh, God, I pray that this time would be incredibly encouraging to each one. Uh, Lord, I recognize that people come this morning to worship, uh, to this worship service in many different places some enthusiastic and ready to sing and ready to learn and ready to express the goodness of God in their life. Lord, others are struggling just to, uh, just to make their way here. And Lord, some are here and they're filled with questions and doubt and skepticism. But Lord, I pray that each one of us as we come to this text this morning and as we we learn from the 20th chapter of the Gospel of John about the resurrection of our Lord, that we would find great hope and great confidence and great encouragement. Lord, for those who have questions, give them answers. For those who need evidence, may they see it here. For those who need encouragement, may they find it this morning. Lord, for those who are already confident and excited and rejoicing in what you have done for us through your son Jesus, may they find all the more reason to rejoice this morning. So we ask that you would have your way with us with this text and give us attentiveness and the ability to learn and to apply what we learn. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to start off with a statement here this morning. A case is only as good as your witnesses. A case is only as good as, as your witnesses. Uh, about a year ago, I served um, again on a grand jury here in Fairbanks, Alaska. And I want to just say, by the way, I don't know if some of you are dodging your responsibilities to serve, but I feel like I have done more than my fair share. Um, tempted to conduct a poll and see how many of you are actually there. But I've been down there, I feel like, a lot. And actually, I'm happy to do it. I feel honored to do it. And uh, I find it very interesting. And I'm Glad to give a Christian voice to um, you know what we encounter there, uh, but this last year we had a case and it was an interesting. Well, we had several, but the the one that we were one of them that we were looking at was uh, two young ladies basically had filed a case of domestic violence against a young man, and the troopers responded to this call, and uh, they collected you know their testimony and recorded that. Uh, they collected additional. Uh, evidence and uh, took pictures and whatnot, and charges were filed. And a couple of days later, uh, the victim and the witness uh, basically returned to the trooper's office in order to withdraw their testimony and actually recant it. Uh, the problem was, of course, the charges had already been filed. The, you know, the case was on its way, and it was going to be heard by um, a grand jury. And uh, again, the troopers had already investigated and found evidence and documented it, and they presented it to us as the grand jury. And then they called in their witnesses, and these gals uh, came forward to uh, basically uh, tell us you know, whatever, whatever their testimony was. 
And you want to talk about a train wreck of testimony. Um, They frequently contradicted. They came in one at a time, and they frequently contradicted one another. They lied outright about relevant issues to the case, and they lied outright about irrelevant things. They lied continually. And it was obvious, and they were trapped in their lies by the questioning of the DA and of of the grand jury. They perjured themselves over and over again, and they clearly showed no interest in pursuing the original charge. And as a member, as a jurist, as a member of the grand jury, we were absolutely frustrated. Uh, we felt like our hands were tied. We had, we had seen some evidence, and we really wanted to see the truth come out, and we wanted to see justice done. And yet, in the end, we knew that our case rested on these witnesses, and we knew that the case was only as strong as these witnesses, and we found their testimony not to be credible at all. And so we elected not, we elected to find not a true bill, if you're familiar with that process, in order to send it up to be tried. And the rationale being of the grand jury that a case is only as strong as your witnesses. And we had no confidence in these particular witnesses. This morning as we come to uh, the Gospel of John, John's account of the resurrection of Jesus, uh, we're going to consider that same reality, that same principle, that a case is only as good as your witnesses. And the Apostle John is going to produce for us his witness list and their testimony, particularly about the resurrection of Jesus. And you're going to find that his witness list that he presents to us here in chapter 20 is not exhaustive. This is not every witness. In fact, if you turn your hand out over and look on the back, I've given you a chart. And we see here many witnesses, those that witnessed the resurrected Lord. John's only going to basically give us three incidents in his particular gospel. So it's not an exhaustive list, but it's his list. And it's significant because it is he as a first-hand witness of this himself. These are those that he observed. So they're his witnesses. They're the witnesses that he has called to give testimony uh, to the resurrection of Jesus. Now, one of the first things that we're going to learn in this chapter, or that I think is important to draw out, is this, that the resurrection of Jesus was unexpected. Let me show that to you. Look at verse 20, or chapter 20, verse 1 with me. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, and i got to pause right here, the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, we know this to be the Apostle John, the author of our gospel. He clarifies that in the next chapter, in chapter 21, if you want to look ahead, but throughout the gospel, as he refers to the other disciple or the one that Jesus loved, we know that he is referring to himself in an unnamed way. He's referring to himself in the third person. So she goes to Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separated from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. 
they still did not understand from the scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Okay, so the first point this morning, we understand that the resurrection of Jesus was not expected. Now that might be surprising to you as a Christian, as a, new, as a reader of the New Testament, particularly as we read the Gospels, we frequently find Jesus letting us know that this is something that's going to happen. Sometimes it's, it's in a bit of a veiled way. It's maybe he refers to uh, the tearing down of the temple and the rebuilding in three days. So, you know, it's in some of his paramia and some of his, you know, parabolic language. Uh, sometimes it's very clear. And we see in the, in the Gospel of Luke, for example, a couple of references that are very direct and very clear and explicit. And yet the following verse might say something like, but the Holy Spirit prevented the disciples from understanding this. But nevertheless, what we understand here, even though we as, as readers of the New Testament and the Old Testament see allusions to the resurrection, and it seems to us to be very clear, we have the benefit of hindsight. We're looking back on the event and we can see, uh, we can see where it was predicted. But the disciples, as we understand, did not expect this. It's important to understand that they were not hoping for the resurrection. They weren't even thinking about the resurrection. In fact, after Jesus was crucified, we don't find them waiting expectantly at the entrance to the grave. Uh, I don't know if you're a basketball fan. If you're not, too bad. You're missing a great sport. I am. And this morning, I'm going to be missing a good game while I'm here. Uh, Coach Mike Krzyzewski, I can barely say his last name, even though I'm a big fan of the Duke Blue Devils, is coaching a game this morning where he is after his 1,000th victory, uh, which is amazing, uh, an incredible feat. And uh, one of the traditions at Duke University is that whenever there is a game, the, all of the um, uh, students, that's what they're called, students, sorry guys, I forgot, <laughs> forgot what you all were called. <laughs> the students of the university will basically camp out in, in front of the gymnasium, in front of uh, Cameron Court uh, before the game. And they actually call it, Shishes- call it Shisheskiville, uh, this place where all the students camp out before, uh, before the game. And they're there, uh, they've been there for days waiting for this game uh, as well. But we don't find the disciples camped out in front of the grave waiting for the resurrection of Jesus. In fact, where we find them, if you look later in this chapter, we find them back in the upper, upper room behind locked doors. They're not waiting eagerly for his resurrection. They're afraid. They're afraid they may be next to be crucified or persecuted. Additionally, in, in, uh, in Luke's gospel, in chapter 24, we find two other disciples who are on their way to a, on the road to Emmaus. And they run into a stranger there who asks them about why they're so troubled. And they basically reply about all of the events of the crucifixion of Christ and what had happened there, and they indicate, and we had thought that he was going to be Israel's redeemer. In other words, what we find with the disciples is that they were not looking for the resurrection. They were instead discouraged and distraught. They were hiding and they were lamenting, how could we have been so wrong? That was the condition that they were in. And these are not the only things that show us that they were not expecting the resurrection of Jesus. Actually, it's very explicitly told us in verse 9 that they did not understand that this had to happen from the scriptures, right? The implication of this, the reason this is important is because it actually helps to diffuse uh, what many have tried to do, which is to circulate 
some kind of a conspiracy theory that the disciples stole the body of Jesus so that they could claim that he had raised from the dead. But there's no validity to that kind of a charge because they were not expecting him to raise from the dead in the first place. And you need to understand that. There are other, uh, other details that sort of corroborate that, that the resurrection of Jesus was unexpected. And the first one here, I would say, is, has to do with Mary Magdalene. She expected, when she went to the tomb, to find Jesus' body. Not a miracle. Now, unfortunately, we don't know as much about Mary as we might like. Um, In fact, before the Passion narrative, we're only given a couple of snippets uh, into her life. In Mark's gospel, she tells us that she was one who was, uh, or excuse me, in Luke's gospel, she was delivered from seven demons, okay? Uh, In the gospel of Mark, we're told that she was one who tended to Jesus' needs and that she was even at the cross while he was being crucified and that she very generously and compassionately supported him in his his ministry, providing for some of his needs out of her own means. And so that's kind of the little that we have about Mary before this particular incident. But it seems to me in this case that she was one who previously had been ministered to greatly by Jesus, and so she generously and and compassionately loved him, and she's showing that same kind of compassion and love and generosity here. As on Sunday morning, she gets up early and she heads down to the tomb And she is going to honor the body of Jesus. Uh, Again, she doesn't bring with her a tambourine, right, to celebrate. What she brings with her are spices to anoint the body. And so she's going to finish the hurried burial preparations uh, that had been done a few nights earlier by Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. Secondly, when the body was missing, we see the conclusion that she came to. It wasn't, wahoo, he's raised. She was distressed. They've taken his body. They've taken his body. And that speaks to her state of mind. She didn't go around wagging her finger and ushering I told you so's to everybody who doubted. She believed the body had been taken. And that, again, shows us that the resurrection was not an immediate expectation of of the disciples. And again, I believe all of that gives credibility to the testimony that they give, to the, the conclusions that they came to that a resurrection did occur because they weren't looking for it in the first place. Now, secondly, what I want to draw out this morning is this, that John's gospel is firsthand testimony of an actual eyewitness. In other words, if we're going to look at the credibility of a statement or the credibility of evidence or the credibility of a witness and their testimony, we ought to find this incredibly credible. I didn't mean to say it like that, but that's how it came out. Incredibly credible. Uh, Because he is a firsthand, this is firsthand testimony of an actual eyewitness. John is writing to us as one who is there. Uh, When we read Luke's gospel, he writes from a little different perspective. Uh, Luke was one who served as an investigative journalist, and he basically went and and heard the stories and, and, and investigated those and chronicled those and wrote down a very orderly account. That's what his gospel is. And it's, it's perfectly valid, and it's meaningful, and it's helpful to the whole story. But John's testimony, again, is, one, is, is from one who was there. And he even includes some little, what I would call, insider information that kind of shows you that he was one 
who was there. In fact, I love this one where he talks about how Mary basically comes to Peter and the other disciple, the one that Jesus loved, just the way he refers to himself in the gospel. And he says that they basically started off running from where they were to the tomb. They started at the same time. And he includes this little point of he got there first. <laughs> and uh, I just got to say, you put any two guys, we watch our, our college group do this regularly. You put two guys in a room and they just start competing over stuff. I don't know how many arm wrestling, Indian leg wrestling, who can eat more soup, whatever else kinds of competitions have happened in our home. They happen all the time. And, and, it, and I see this little picture here and it, just, it makes me laugh, but it's one of those little nuanced details that shows you he was there. They left at the same time, I got there first. And I kind of like how he says that. And then we also see some of the individual personalities or temperaments coming out just a little bit. We see John and we see Mary who come up to the tomb and then they stop, right? They pause. And the original Greek word here gives the impression that they kind of peer in. They look carefully inside, sort of respectfully, sort of cautiously with a degree of humility. They kind of look inside. And then when Peter finally does get there, he blows right through the door. That's Peter. And just these little details show that this is a firsthand account, among many other things. But John saw the empty tomb firsthand. And um, again, as with the case that I brought up a few minutes ago as I introduced this, if I'm going to be convinced of somebody's testimony and the validity of it, if I, especially if it has to do with a very unusual circumstance, such as a resurrection, then I want a reliable witness. They had better be credible. And John shows himself to be very credible. He was there on the scene. He was a firsthand witness. Then there's this interesting statement here in verse 9, and I want to look at that together. He says, He saw and believed... And it sort of begs the question, believed what? What exactly did, did he believe? But then it goes on to tell us in this parenthetical note that they still did not understand from the scriptures that Jesus had to rise from the dead. So the question is, well, what did they believe? Well, believing here refers specifically to the resurrection. And I, and I recognize that just because you have an, an, uh, an empty tomb or a missing body, that does not mean you have a resurrection. But what's fascinating is that he, John, he tells us that he believed. In other words, he concluded specifically because of the way that the grave clothes had been left behind that a resurrection had occurred. He didn't know it from the scriptures. He didn't have a prior conviction or a prior expectation that it was to happen. But when he walked into the tomb and he saw the grave clothes and he saw the way that they were left behind, he came to this belief. We're told here that they were folded up neatly. In fact, this is one of the cases where I would say the NIV, as much as I appreciate this translation, kind of fails us here. Uh, when, when we look at the original language, there's a little more detail in this word that I think is important. The NIV says that they were lying there or lying in its place. The New American Standard says they were rolled up. The ESV says folded up. The King James says they were wrapped together. 
Uh, in other words, the, the way that the face cloth, particularly, and the linens that Jesus would have been wearing were left behind, they didn't indicate that somebody had quickly run in and snatched a body and removed the clothing and left it behind. They didn't indicate uh, a theft. You know, if somebody were to have come in and stole the body, they would have either taken it, clothes and all, or if for some bizarre reason, and I can't understand why you would do this, you would strip the body and leave the clothes behind, you would simply leave a pile of clothes the same way your kids do when they leave for school in the morning, right? There's no intention in order that just these clothes didn't work, they're left behind and off we go. And that's what you would have, find, would have found with a the theft. But the impression that the disciples had based on the orientation of the clothes was that Jesus had come back from the dead and that he carefully folded his grave clothes as if to say, well, I'm done with these, <laughs> which I think is just great. They don't have a prior expectation of a resurrection, but when they walk in and they look at the orientation of the clothes, the conclusion they come to is, Jesus left this place and he left these clothes behind in this order and he did it willfully. And that's an interesting conclusion that they came to here. The other thing we find is this isn't just John's conclusion, although he, he, he said this is his conclusion, but his testimony based on what was found can be corroborated by Mary and Peter. Uh, it's not his testimony alone. And it's almost as though the Apostle John anticipates some of the questions from a skeptic in the way that he lays out his witness list here. Uh, Again, just just because Mary and these two other witnesses have just observed an empty tomb and the remainder of some grave clothes, all that verifies is that the body is gone, right? I mean, really, that's all that that verifies. They may have a hunch that a resurrection occurred, but all that verifies is that the body is gone and it's not wearing the clothes that it was wearing when it was placed in here. Uh, So it does not a resurrection make, even if the clothes are folded into origami. I mean, it just doesn't lead us all the way there. It comes up short. And I love the comment of F.F. Bruce, and this is what you have in your handout this morning. In general, it is true that the early Christians did not believe in the resurrection of Christ because they could not find his dead body. They believed because they did find a living Christ. And that's what we begin to see here. And so John begins to produce for us his witness list, those who didn't just encounter an empty tomb, but encountered a living body, a living person, the person of Jesus. And again, his witness list is not just a a random list of individuals, but there is a logical progression to the way that he rolls it out. First, we find an individual woman, and then we see a group, a group of discouraged followers of Christ, and then he concludes with a disillusioned skeptic. And so again, there is a progression, I think, to the way he rolls out his witness list. So first of all, John produces what I will call an unlikely witness, and that is Mary Magdalene. Look at verse 10 with me. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. 
At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Now, I say that Mary is an unlikely witness here because, now brace yourself, because she's a woman. And I'm not kidding. I say that she is an unlikely witness because she is a woman. And here's why, as offensive as it is to our modern ears, the reality is that a woman's testimony at this time, in this culture, at this place was not credible. And we don't like that. It offends us. It bothers us. But it is the reality of that day. At this particular time, her her testimony was not credible. It was not even admissible in court. And I, I almost wonder, and this is just my wondering, but I wonder if that's why Peter and John, it's interesting, John has come to the conclusion that there's been a resurrection. He and Peter leave. I get the sense that they're talking about it on the way. But John has already told us that he's convinced. But Mary is left behind wondering. She's still wondering where the body is. It's almost as though they didn't even bother to discuss it with her and they took off and she's here left asking questions. But here's the thing. I find that the presentation of a woman as the first witness, particularly in this patriarchal culture, that it actually authenticates the validity of the claim. And here's why. If you were going to perpetrate some kind of a conspiracy, if you were going to sneak in and snatch the body and then claim that a resurrection had occurred, number one, you wouldn't take the time to fold up the clothes as they had, but secondly, you would not produce as your first and most important witness at this particular time in this particular place with this patriarchal culture, you would not produce a woman as your first witness. And yet that is exactly what occurred here. And I believe that that actually authenticates and makes more reliable the evidence and the fact that this occurred. Jesus appeared first to Mary. What an honor. Can you imagine being the first one to whom he appeared? And I think it's worth noting too that Jesus' ministry was very liberating and very honoring to women amidst a world that was anything but. The first witness of the resurrection, and not only that, but the first to get to spread the news. She gets to run off and tell of the empty tomb and she gets to go back and say what she has seen. She is specifically commissioned to tell others. Well, that's just the first witness. Again, John's witness list is sort of progressive here. And the next one that he, he rolls out for us is a collective witness, a group witness. And again, it's almost as though the Apostle John were anticipating sort of the, the reaction of a skeptical audience. We're not going to believe because of one woman's testimony. Don't find that very credible. You could understand that in that particular culture. In fact, in Deuteronomy 17, 6, and and again in chapter 19, verse 15, 
we, we hear these words. This has to do with sort of Jewish culture and law. One witness is not enough to convict anyone accused of a crime or an offense they may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. In fact, it's that same kind of language that we see in Matthew 18, the passage that everybody says where two or three are gathered, there Jesus is in the midst, and we think about it as, as you know, whenever we get people together, then Jesus has come with us, and it seems to be a passage about fellowship. It's not. It's a passage about church discipline. It basically says where two or three people gather together and they agree on something when they are together in something that they, and they confront it, that they go with Jesus' authority and his presence. It's not, yay, Jesus is here because three of us are here. It's because we agree on these things and there's, there's a group of us, as is consistent with the, the Jewish law here, that we have Christ's presence and authority to address the matter. And so you can almost, you can almost hear John responding to an audience that would have been skeptical saying, wait a minute, you've only produced one witness and it's a woman at that. So why would we believe this? And so John provides here the testimony of a group of disciples who all saw the resurrected Jesus at the same time. Verse 18. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that That first day of the week when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear that the Jewish leaders, fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Again, the way that John portrays the events here purposefully contradicts the objections of a skeptic. The skeptic would say, if you have a living Jesus who walks into the room, then somewhere along the way we have an imposter Either the person on the cross was not Jesus and they crucified the wrong one, or the person in the room is pretending to be Jesus, maybe looks like him, but is not in fact him. But Jesus here identifies himself with very unique wounds, doesn't he? Not just the scars on his hands and his feet, but particularly the piercing of his side and no broken bones in his legs. Those are unique wounds that identify him. And so the same man who passed through the grave clothes passed right through the door, appear in this room, and identify himself as the Jesus who had been crucified. Something else that's interesting here, I mean, the disciples are specifically commissioned to go and to tell and to spread the word of what they have seen. In fact, it says in this was interesting to me. I mean, you know, every now and then you, you stumble on something in the scriptures and you think, I'm not sure I knew that before. And for me, studying this passage, once again, that happened. I'm not ashamed to admit that. In fact, I kind of love it when it happens. The fact that Jesus breathed on them the Holy Spirit at this time and place. If you were to have asked me, I think I would have said, the Holy Spirit was shed abroad at Pentecost. I'm not sure that I recognized that the disciples had somehow been imparted with the Holy Spirit here in the upper room before going out, before even Pentecost occurred. 
But here, what Jesus called them to, he equipped them for by giving them the Holy Spirit at this particular time. And I think something that's very credible for uh, the case of the resurrection is this. It is the changed behavior of the disciples. These once cowardly men who are up in the upper room behind locked doors afraid now become men who are courageous and have a conviction and have a change about them such that now they're willing to die. In fact, all of them did die as martyrs for what they believed that Christ had raised from the dead. And so the, the, the most resistant skeptic on earth might say, I just can't believe what I see here. But something is, that is absolutely irrefutable is this, that the disciples on the scene believed in the resurrection and they gave their lives in defense of it. Nobody denies that. And I find that to be very compelling evidence. Well, once again, it's almost as though John anticipates the objection of a skeptic. Okay, we've got a single woman who's got a history of mental illness. Don't find that real credible here. Then he moves along, and you've, sure, you've produced a, a group of people. But, you know, I don't find that particularly convincing. This group of people were already fans of Jesus to begin with, right? They were already his followers. So, of course, they're going to say he rose from the dead. But now, John produces his expert witness, his star witness, and that is Thomas, doubting Thomas, our skeptic. Look at verse 24. Now, Thomas, also known as Didymus, which means twin, by the way, one of the 12 was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, the disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now again here, I find this last witness to be a wonderful witness. A couple of things. First of all, his name Didymus means twins which I don't know, I'm just, this is just Eric's thinking here, but when I read that, I think, you know, here's a guy who's probably played a lot of those twin switcheroo games his whole life, you know? If somebody is gonna, you know, be skeptical of some kind of a switch like this, it's probably Thomas Didymus, and he's telling us he's not inclined to believe. He's telling us he is a skeptic. In fact, Thomas is not with the disciples immediately after the crucifixion, is he? He's off on his own, and I find that interesting. It seems to me as though he is, is saying, hey, Jesus was killed. The movement is over. I'm out. I'm not going to be fooled again. I'm not going to be duped again. He seems to cut ties with this band of disciples here. He seems to continue in his disillusionment even for up to a week. 
In fact, in, in verse 25 where it says, so the disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. That word told is elegon, and it's, it's in the imperfect tense, which means it is a continual ongoing activity. In other words, the disciples were telling him, arguing with him, persuading him, telling him again and again and again, we have seen the risen Christ. A week's time went by. Thomas continuing to keep belief at bay so that he would not be duped again. And I just want to say, I am so glad that this passage is here. I am so glad that God put on the scene a skeptical guy who demanded empirical evidence and proof. I would be disappointed to find only a sentimental band of followers who are predisposed to see the resurrection of Jesus. And John lays out a witness list that is progressive and ends with a cynic who was not inclined to believe and yet whose mind was changed. And Thomas's statement at the end, I think, is phenomenal. He doesn't just say, well, you were right. He did rise. He says, my Lord and my God. He understands the implication of the resurrection. He understands what it means and what it demands of him. When I started out um, this message, I started with this statement this morning that a case is only as strong as your witnesses. And I hope that you have seen that the, the progressive rollout of quality witnesses from John helps to prove what he has been trying to affirm all along in his gospel. The, the core and the key verses, verses 30 and 31, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name, just as Thomas did. And so I want to bring this to bear on your life fairly quickly here. Probably everyone in this room could, could find themselves pretty neatly into one of three categories. Some of you may be a skeptic. And you may be saying, I just can't believe this. It's just too far-fetched. I don't find there to be good evidence. I don't know. It's just a struggle for me. And to you, I would say the same words that Jesus said to Thomas, which is stop doubting and believe. The evidence is there. A fair-minded inquirer of this event would believe. If you're a concerned Christian and you wonder sometimes about the basis of your faith and if it's reliable and or if you're just way out there on a limb, then I want to tell you, be comforted. Look at the quality evidence we have. And this is just one lane of evidence. It's not even the comprehensive list of witnesses. Look at the comprehensive list on the back of your notes. Jesus rose from the dead. If you came in here this morning and you were a confident Christian, and you were already assured of these things, then I would hope, I would hope you would be compelled to go on and share with others. Each one that witnessed the resurrection of Christ, each one that stepped forward with their testimony was commissioned by Jesus to go and to share with others. Mary, go and share with the brothers. To the disciples, he breathed on them the Holy Spirit and told them to go. And to Thomas, the implications of my Lord and my God, Jesus recognized you believe because you've seen, but he understands that many more will believe who will not see the same things that he did. The disciples were all commissioned, each one 
who saw what they saw and gave testimony to it were commissioned to go and share with others. And so I would hope if you came in as a confident believer in the resurrection of Christ, that you would be compelled to be a better witness. We think of the witnesses and testimonies and the reliability of their testimony as sort of a once upon a time thing. But here's the other kicker. The reality in our day is that the gospel that we preach to people will only be as reliable as we, as modern witnesses are. And that's something we should give attention to as well. I want to lead us in prayer, please. Father, we thank you for the evidence that we find for the reliability of the resurrection. I thank you for John's uh, organized, systematic, thorough, progressive way that he rolls out quality witnesses from a firsthand account. God, there's ample evidence here to believe. Lord, I pray that whatever might be keeping anyone in this room this morning from believing that they would allow themselves to believe where the evidence points. Would you draw them to yourself? Father, if there are some who have been uneasy, give them comfort and encouragement. Father, if there are some who have, been, who have believed and have been confident, but have been holding on to it themselves, then I say, Lord, press them to see a lost and dying world press them to see the need of others press them to be a quality and reliable witness for what you have done thank you for your death your burial and thank you for your resurrection for you've conquered sin and death and so we say together as the people of god amen